Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur from Flemingsburg, Kentucky. I don't think you'd uh, pass for a Kentuckian, Cam, with that accent. <laughs> That's true. I would be the guy on the train who they uh, immediately realize is not from the South. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Now, um, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't quite prepared for the film we've uh, we've got to talk about this week, especially coming hot on the heels of the last time we spoke about this story. So much so that I think we needed to uh, check the tickets and board another guest with us on the train this week. Joining us for the second time in like three years since her last appearance on the show, hmm. it is Miss Janine Smith. Hello, Janine. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited to be here to talk about this movie. Well, we're excited to to have you back on. The last time you appeared on the show was way, 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 way back when we spoke about Tomorrow Never Dies, which is a film you don't like to talk about, apparently. No, at all. Great guest. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, hopefully this this film this time will be uh, maybe more up your uh, track. Should we say? Oh, mm -hmm. very nice. Mm -hmm. But before we get to the film, a lot of things have happened in the spy movie world since you were last on. Famously, James Bond got blown up. So I just kind of wanted to hear from you, Janine, as you're a massive James Bond fan. What were your sort of brief thoughts on, on No Time to Die and its, uh, its ending? So I really, first of all, I'll say I am a huge Spectre apologist. I love that movie. So... Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so i've been a huge fan of all of the craig movies i thought they've all been really top notch i've loved every single one of them so i had really high hopes going into no time to die um and i was i was really surprised and thrilled with the movie um overall i cried probably three or four times um most notably yes with the passing of james bond um, unlike some people, a lot of people, his death didn't bother me at all. I thought it was a nice ending to the Craig era. I've always viewed the Craig era as its own entity, not sort of connected to the others. So to me, it was a fitting ending. I, I can't argue with that point. And I, I actually should just jump in for a second. For listeners who haven't heard the Tomorrow Never Dies episode and had the setup here, you may have noticed that the surnames of both the host, Cam, and Janine, our guest this week, are the same. That's because they're brother and sister, everyone. That's right, yeah. Longtime Spyhards diehards will have remembered her from Tomorrow Never Dies, where we introduced all that sort of information. But yes, that's correct. I thought, I, I thought I'd chuck it in. But back to No Time to Die. I mean, Cam and I would both agree, I think it sort of thematically pays off very well in the sort of Craig era. It's a lovely little encapsulation, five-film, you know, I don't know what the name is, not Quadrilogy. I don't know what the one after that is, but a good five-film series. And, uh, is that Quintology? Perhaps so. Quintology. It sounds good. It does. It sounds better than Quadrilogy. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with Quintology. Uh, and I think, yeah, we'll move on to, to other things in the future. I don't know why everyone's got so up in arms about it really yeah it it to me is just you know james bond's changed in so many ways over the years anyway like this is really just a blip mm -hmm. 
And aside from Bond, have you been sort of keeping up with spy movies coming out? We've had Mission Impossible recently, things like The Grey Man, stuff like that. Any films jump out to you for the last few years? Um, Mission Impossible is the most recent one. Went to that one actually with Cameron for the Tuesday early show. Um, and that's the main one that I can think of that I've seen. And I absolutely loved that one. I mean, Tom Cruise can do no wrong. He could probably have just made a movie of two and a half hours of running and I would have been satisfied. So, I mean, what else can you say? He nailed it. It's also notable, though, on the uh, spy movie scene, you and I attended a screening of Buster Keaton's The General uh, relatively recently. They do Silent Movie Mondays uh, here in Vancouver. I think it was only like three months in a row. They did it just once mm -hmm. a month. And we went and saw Safety Last, um, the Harold Lloyd film first. And then they did The General for the second installment. And Janine, we talked a lot about The General. I think it was almost two hours in our episode on that movie. But what did you think of The General? I love The General. I really had no idea about that movie at all, or really Buster Keaton. Um, the most I've heard about Buster Keaton, I guess, was when his movie appeared on Discovery. Yeah. And then I heard. Red Alert, <laughs> Star Trek Discovery, yes. <laughs> Yeah, and then I heard a lot of um, mocking of that on the, you know, Subspace Pods uh, podcast, plug there. Um, but other than that, I, I wasn't familiar at all. Uh, I really enjoy silent movies, so this wasn't my first. So I sort of knew what I was getting into going into it. And it was, it was unbelievably up to date. Like, it wasn't one of those old movies you watch and you're like, I can appreciate that as a movie of its time. It was just a really great movie, period. And seeing it seeing it with, you know, a live organ and a crowd full of people was, it was an incredible experience. Yeah, and it's also notable, like, they closed it out with, like, a Q&A about the movie. I'm hoping they continue to do more of these in the future in Vancouver because they were, A, pretty popular, and B, the best way to see these movies. I mean, having watched a few different versions of The General when we covered it, I would have actually liked to have seen it live with a organ. I mean, Cam, I know you watched it a bunch of times before that. Seeing it live with the organ, did it improve the experience? I mean, I would say with any silent film, the best way to see it is in a theater. Because when you watch something silent at home, it just doesn't have that entirely immersive effect. Because, well, it's silence so you tend to notice other things going on around you in your apartment or house or whatever you know the dog barking outside things like that whereas when you're in the theater you are just kind of like glued to the screen and the music really does kind of cast a spell over you so i mean janine and i went years ago and saw nosferatu with the orchestra doing the score and since then we've gone and seen a number of presentations we've seen nosferatu a few times the cabinet of dr caligari um, obviously The General and Safety Last. I feel like there's another one. I know I went and saw, they did the original Ben-Hur uh, once I saw that. But yeah, it's a big, it's something that does happen from time to time in Vancouver. And I always say to anyone, go and see these movies this way because a lot of film academics like to catch up with these movies, but they kind of sit at home and watch questionable versions, maybe on YouTube with, uh, you know, maybe tinny scores or something. And that's really not the best way you can see them. No, fair enough. If it comes to town here in London, I will try and catch that train. And speaking of catch that train, I think it's time we unveil the film we're talking about this week, Cam. Over to you, sir. 
Yes, we are here to talk about 1956's The Great Locomotive Chase, produced by Walt Disney. Yeah, I didn't notice this was a Disney film going into it. That Seeing that Buena Vista at the start and CinemaScope or whatever it is, I was like, oh, okay, this is a, we're off to an interesting start here. And there's a lot to talk about. I want to get to our usual questions, but I think maybe the best setup question is because Cam, when we picked this film, you were like, we've got to get Janine on. Janine's our guest. <laughs> I kind of need to know, and I think the listeners need to know as well, what's the setup here? What is the connection with you two and this film? Uh, so during the pandemic, um, Cameron and I, as a way of sort of staying connected, uh, embarked on watching Disney live action movies, predominantly, I believe the sixties through the eighties, uh, we would watch these. We started on, I guess it was Disney plus was pretty new. Yeah. So we were watching it on that and then we would, um, chat back and forth, uh, through, zoom or whatever um and we would every we started out sort of watching the movies to be like oh what are ones we've sort of heard of or good reputations or you know actors that we're aware of and then over time it somehow divulged into this like who can find a really obscure disney live action movie so we started going to youtube and apple and all these places to dig up just the weirdest Disney movies. <laughs> <laughs> just ones that were watching grainy ones on YouTube that Disney will not recognize as like one of their properties. It, just insanity. And I'm very proud to say that my pick one night was the movie we're going to do today. And, and it was one of those moments where instantly... I knew we'd discovered a gem. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, Cam, do you have any comment on that? Well, that is very true. And we were bouncing <laughs> all over the place from, you know, things like, um, what's it like? The Seven Lives of Thomasina, the very religious film about a cat, um, to like the Herbie movies, a lot of the Western stuff, uh, the Nomobile. We were all over the place. The Dexter trilogy, uh, all these various forgotten disney movies people it's funny when i uh, you know kind of look at reviews or conversation going on around say like a major disney movie that comes out like a big expensive blockbuster that bombs and people don't like it there's a lot of talk of like what is disney doing these days they are really compromising themselves with these types of expensive failures if you go back and study the 1950s 60s and 70s and 80s of disney there is so much crap <laughs> crap that will never show up in a montage of Disney when they're showing, you know, scenes from Pinocchio and Fantasia and Mary Poppins. There is an endless amount of garbage to uh, dig into. And uh, I always find that kind of interesting in the way we kind of reframe what we think of as Disney. Well, it's weird because like, if you look at the history of this show, we've had really bad luck with Disney. Yeah. Like we had uh, Trenchcoat, yep. which was... Uh, an experience all into itself one of our dinosaurs is missing i think it was a disney film those are two disavowed films right there yeah 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 they, they, they ain't the top notch knockless stuff that's uh, some real bottom shelf stuff right there we did have condor man i didn't mention condor man but yes that, that's probably the only redeeming one we've had so far but can the great locomotive chase change that 
<laughs> we'll find out. It's also notable, of course, that Janine and I are Disneyland junkies and have gone together a couple times and spent much time in Frontierland in Disneyland. So um, this movie very much encapsulates kind of multiple obsessions. I mean, to to those who've never been to Disneyland, Frontierland is basically sort of Civil War esque times, right? It's the Wild West. Yeah. Okay. Ish. Okay. Um, okay. Ish. Fair enough. Ish. <laughs> it's very ish. Ish. Right. Um, well, for those who have never seen the great locomotive chase, and we should also say the story told in the general is basically in a way retold in this from a different perspective, which we'll boil into a little bit more and sort of go into. But here is your synopsis of the film. The great locomotive chase. A true-life spy story of ultimate suspense. <laughs> High speed. <laughs> is ultimate... Is ultimate... I don't know. Okay. High speed and inconceivable bravery. During the Civil War, a Union spy by the name of Andrews is asked to lead a band of Union soldiers into the South so they can destroy the railway system. However... Things do not go as planned when the conductor of the train that they stole is onto them and is doing everything he can to stop them, based on a true story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm gonna just jump in with something that bugged me about this film real quick, and it bugs me with, with wow. films. In, <laughs> it bugs me with films in general, and it's also in this synopsis: the ultimate suspense, right? Yeah. The great locomotive chase. Who is deciding if this thing is great ahead of time? That's a yeah, yeah. Like the uh, the amazing Spider Man, I'm not sure. They were confident. Is he amazing? They well, were, yeah, gambling. I mean, to be fair, the Great Locomotive Chase is the name of the book. Well, no, I actually looked that up because what? I thought the same thing. What it was? They call it that in the um in the movie, and so I assume that because it opens with a very classic yeah. Disney opening of like the book, right? Mm -hmm. But I googled the book or not googled it, but searched it on Amazon. And it's called Capturing a Locomotive, A History of Secret Service in the Late War by William Pittenger. I refuse. <laughs> that title ain't great, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Capturing a Locomotive doesn't really grab you the way uh, the Great Locomotive Chase does. It, it's not as great. No. 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 And I, I will just jump in and say, I have never seen this film. Well, whilst our guest and Cam, of course, are experts when it comes to locomotive chasing. To be fair, I don't know that this movie would travel that well over there, would it? Is that a joke about trains? No, but like, do frontier stories or American Civil War stories really grab a lot of attention over there? Like, maybe to older generations than myself, perhaps? Okay. Like, the stories of that time period excite people? I mean, we don't just watch stuff that happened in our past. Right. You see, we refuse to watch anything to do with British history whatsoever. That makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. That's, yeah. that's why you're so fascinated with our culture. And I live in British Columbia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I suppose the question to ask then is, as I'd never seen this before, but the two of you had seen this as part of your Disney watch party experience, which is a great way to, to bond. And we all had these sort of things going during the coronavirus lockdowns. What did you both think of the great locomotive chase when you saw it the first time? I'll go with you first, Janine. So, right off the bat, I won't bury the lead. My big draw to this movie was Fess Parker. I am a massive Fess Parker fan. <laughs> <laughs> I There's no shame in that. Um, so when he, when he, you know, sauntered onto the screen on that horse, I was in. Then the chase started. 
and um, it slowed down a little. I I would say overall, I initially really I enjoyed the movie, but I was definitely let down by the promise of a great chase and the discovery of a very anticlimactic situation. I'm glad you fessed up. Oh, good one. Good one. Mm. What about you, Cam? Well, I pulled out my letterbox review uh, because I could actually have my actual thoughts. I wrote, I'm going to have to call two words in this title into question. (laughs) You did what I did. (laughs) Yep. Except I beat you to it. I did it on March 20th, 2021. Um, Oh, wow. Dig the 50s frontier movie vibe and Technicolor cinematography, though. So, um... I would say my main takeaway was that, like, in terms of Disney makes these movies that feel kind of creaky and like you're watching an antique of some sort, even though we've watched movies from the same year that seem like somewhat timeless. These movies feel almost like history comes alive educational specials you'd watch in school and PBS or something. Yeah. And there's something about like the matte paintings, the kind of the, the vistas and almost like the studio-bound nature of them that I find very charming. And this one has that. And plus, Fess Parker was a big draw. And maybe Scott is completely baffled by the Fess Parker element at this point. But like Janine and I, before we watched this one, watched the Davy Crockett films, which Davy Crockett were a number of episodes that appeared on The uh, Wonderful World of Disney. And then they packaged them together as movies later on. And Fess Parker gained massive fame in the 50s for playing Davy Crockett, the frontier icon. And the song, the Davy Crockett ballad song became like a huge hit on the radio. Kids were wearing the raccoon caps everywhere. Like it was a real legitimate North American craze. And so they repackaged these episodes into movies the way they did with like The Man from Uncle, for example. Uh-huh. And so yeah. Janine and I watched these two movies, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, and Davy Crockett and the River Pirates. And we were fascinated by his performance. <laughs> and that he seems to be stoned through like every scene in those movies. It's like this almost like zend out. I don't know, like homespun wisdom coming out of this man. And we were just like so fascinated by it that it led us down a rabbit hole of digging out other Fess Parker vehicles. Well, you claimed that you were very monotone earlier in our discussion, Cam. I I think maybe that's your inner Fess Parker coming out there. Maybe, maybe, yes. Maybe. Okay. Well, I'm... I'm curious that before me perhaps dig a little deeper into the Great Locomotive Chase... How did we go from The General, a Buster Keaton silent film, to a Disney remaking of the same story? Right. So, like, the famous Civil War story that was chronicled in The General um, was very well known. It was events that happened in 1862, and Walt mm-hmm. Disney was very interested in making, like, a dramatic version of that story. The General was well known, but he really, you know, was like, well, that's a comedy. I want to do kind of the adventure story version of that. And in this case, obviously, the Yankees are the heroes versus the uh, Confederates and the general. And this, just to give you a sense of where Disney was, this movie was like coming out the year after movies like Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, Lady and the Tramp, and The Littlest Outlaw. And Janine and I did watch The Littlest (laughs) Outlaw as well. That was good. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty good, actually. Wait, the OG Lady and the Tramp came out the same year as this? The year before. So this is like following up. That's kind of the era we are in for Disney at the time of this movie. 
Scott, don't don't try to make sense of these live action movies and where they look like they should live. Yeah, this, Just... this does not add up at all. I've got so many questions, but I can't interrupt Cam's uh, train that's coming. So let's start with the writer, Lawrence Edward Watkin, who was an American writer. He wrote a 1937 novel called On Borrowed Time, which became a sensation. It won awards. It was adapted into a Broadway play, and it also became a 1939 film starring Lionel Barrymore. I looked up a synopsis on On Borrowed Time, and it is about a cantankerous old man takes in his beloved orphaned grandson, whom he must protect at all costs, with the help of the agent of death and a magical apple tree. Okay. I'm in. <laughs> so, right. yeah, this got him a lot of fame, and he was hired by Disney in 1947. That's kind of a key year for him, because in 47, he has his first like kind of major screenwriting debut on the John Sturgis film, Keeper of the Bees, which is a very funny sounding title. Whenever you throw the word bees into a title, it's automatically funny. Keeper of the Bees, I'm sure it's... Uh... It's also like the weirdest way of saying beekeeper. It, yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> it sounds so much more important, yeah, right? Yeah. Like the Keeper of the Bees. <laughs> so the same year as Keeper of the Bees, he's also approached by Walt Disney to adapt the H.T. Kavanaugh Darby O'Gill stories into a movie. And that movie... Darby O'Gill? That's right, Darby O'Gill. And so Darby O'Gill doesn't become a movie for like 12 years. And it's 1959 when that project finally hits the screen and it's starring Sean Connery, the film Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Scott, have you not heard of that? You have to look it up. I, I have no idea what any of you are talking about. I <laughs> yeah, Sean Connery. You have to look that up. That's you it. have to look that up. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. It's a trip. And I remember when I saw it as a child, I was like very, very, very ill. And so it really did feel like I was hallucinating through the course of the entire movie. <laughs> and I probably was. Wasn't that one of Sean's like first films? Yeah. 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 Okay. But he started on that in 1947 and then just like developed such a good relationship with Walt Disney that he became like writer of Disney movies. That became his like career long profession really. He did some TV, but starting with 1950s Treasure Island, which was like a legit hit, he proceeded and did uh, the story of Robin Hood and his Merry Men, The Sword and the Rose, Rob Roy, The Highland Rogue. And then he rolled from those right into The Great Locomotive Chase. And yes, Janine and I have watched all three of those movies I named. <laughs> <laughs> Were they also directed by Robert Stevenson? Uh, a number of them were, yes. <laughs> it's like I'm sort of like watching two people go through a shared trauma or something right now. They're just like in hysterics. I, I, maybe I'm the psychiatrist and they're, 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 they're the patients right now, perhaps. Well, like Disney was like a conveyor belt. And if you watch uh -huh. a whole bunch of their movies, you'll just see the same writers and directors pop up over and over and over again. Sure. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Robert yeah. Stevenson was a, one of those directors. but Same with the Bond films. They had the same set of directors and writers. They basically just you know, went back and forth for low, like the first sort of 10, 15 films, really. Yeah, exactly. And so like this guy just wrote Disney films for most of his career. And uh, he went on and did more after this. And he closed out his career in 1972. And Janine's going to love this with the film, The Biscuit Eater. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> yes, which is a story about like a young boy who gets a dog. And, uh, That's so worth they talk about egg sucking a lot. Yeah, that's right. It's a lot of references to egg sucking and biscuit eating. Is I I 
I've got so many questions. I'm so lost. But keep on going, please. Uh, yes. Um, these movies are almost all available on Disney Plus for all of you that would like to track them down. But needless to say, this guy was very good at writing fast and just crank out movie after movie after movie. Sure. So that was kind of his skill set. And they hired on director Francis D. Lyon, who was a British director, not someone who'd worked in the Disney canon really at all. He was really known more as an editor. And he started in 1932 on the film Hypnotized, which I searched that one. It is incredibly racist. It may not be available anywhere. So it was like basically a blackface movie. Oy. And um, he proceeded just doing a number of editing jobs, like a whole bunch across the whole industry. Um, most notably... I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that and be like, he proceeded to be incredibly racist for the rest of his career. Uh -huh. He never stopped. I'm sure he probably did, among his many, many credits, edit other movies that are um, <laughs> deservedly lost to time. But um, notably, he did do some uncredited editing work on the John Wayne film Red River, which is very good. Um, his final editing credit was 1952's Red Planet Mars. And then he rolled that same year into directing. And he did an episode of Chevron Theater, which was like a one of those anthology shows like Climax, for example. And then he did, in 1953, a movie called Crazy Legs, which was a biopic of a football star of the time, Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch, who starred as himself in the movie. Uh, I suspect it's probably not great. How dare you? That could be the greatest film you've never seen. <laughs> Maybe. I want to see this man's follow-up, though. He did a movie called Cult of the Cobra, which was his lead into this movie. I want to watch Cult of the Cobra. It looks like a blast. Is it a Disney film? No. No, it's not. No. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We've got our team together. Yeah. And then he was picked up by Disney to join them and do this movie. And his final credit is actually something we're going to cover on Spy Hearts at some point down the future. Uh, it's called The Girl Who Knew Too Much, starring Adam West and Nancy Kwan. Wow. Wasn't Nancy Kwan also in Batman 66? I, she was maybe in one episode or like a two-parter or something. I don't know. But, I mean, we know her best from The Wrecking Crew. Of course, of course. And mm -hmm. then Adam West is, of course, the best Batman ever. Yeah, exactly. And I'll just pivot over to Fess Parker, because we were talking about him earlier. Texas-born actor. Um, he appeared in 1952's Springfield Rifle, one of his early jobs. Did he? He did indeed. Scott perks up. Oh? But it was, as I said, 1954's Davy Crockett episodes on Magical World of Disney that made him a huge star. And... He was at a point with this movie where he was actually getting frustrated with Disney because he apparently found out during conversations with Jeffrey Hunter, the topic of the movie The Searchers came up. And that was a John Wayne film that has become regarded as a major classic. And Jeffrey Hunter is the co-star of that movie. And Fess Parker found out that they actually wanted to talk to him about co-starring in that movie. But Disney said no and just kind of dismissed it. And then he also wanted to appear in the Marilyn Monroe film Bus Stop. And Disney also shot that down. Disney was very protective of their stars. They liked them to have a very specific image. And Fess Parker was Davy Crockett. And they were going to stick to that template. Now, I'm not particularly familiar with Davy Crockett or what Davy Crockett is like. But is Davy Crockett like anything in this film? Um, is, is, his, is Fess Parker's Davy Crockett like Fess Parker in this film? Yeah, kind of, yes. Uh, he wears like a coonskin cap in those movies, but... That's the only difference. <laughs> <laughs> what else would you say? I would say um, he has a bit more charisma 
as Davy Crockett. Uh, he's a lot more even keeled, I would say, in this movie. Whereas Davy Crockett, he he's a bit more playful. Yeah, I guess I think of like with Davy Crockett, the way they're divided up, it's kind of like the frontiersman stories, which are more myth than reality at this point. Um, but there's the later episodes where it's about his real world trips to like working in Congress, and that sort of story I think lines up a little more with this character like kind of the more serious voice of kind of morals I see a little more of a parallel uh, just a question for Janine is even keeled like a metaphor for stiff as a board yes okay cool right just checking <laughs> yes 100% <laughs> okay how dare you <laughs> so sorry yeah uh so Fess Parker unfortunately like really didn't get away from the typecasting he had from Davy Crockett. He would be stuck in kind of that mold. And um, he would just wind up doing a show called Daniel Boone about another frontier hero for like a big chunk of his career, do like 165 episodes of that. And he really was mostly known as a Disney icon. He has outside stuff. He's in actually a really great sci-fi movie called Them with Killer Ants. He plays like a someone going through, I think it was like PTSD or something like that. He's very good. He was a pilot, I believe, in that movie that basically was committed to a mental hospital for claiming that he saw giant, uh, giant ants. Yeah. And nobody believed him. And he can play different, like, angles or different types, but, like, Disney very much pigeonholed him to the point where that was his career forever. Yeah, and I sometimes wonder, too, if maybe Fess Parker got a bit of, you almost call, like, Sean Connery as Bonditis where he just got kind of tired of being like, oh, I got to play this guy again. So, yeah, I'm going to come on screen. I'm going to be, you know, just charming in general. But overall, the performance is lacking in any sort of, like, enthusiasm. Well, as the Fest Parker experts, does does Fest Parker ever get his Never Say Never Again, where he comes back 20 years later and he's actually really loving doing that character again? No. No, sadly, no. I believe he retired from acting at around, like, 45. Yeah, oh. I think it was I think it was after the Daniel Boone show wrapped, he was just like, I'm good. I've got enough money to just live out the rest of my life. Yeah, and so he started a winery out in California and you know, it's still operating to this day by his family, so I think he just sort of he was trapped in the Disney machine for so long and then I think he just once he got out and did Daniel Boone's like, you know what, there's other things in life to do. The fact that you just dropped a bit of a knowledge bomb that he has a winery in California that's still <laughs> operating now. I mean, I'm impressed, I have to say. <laughs> this this has become an episode of Fess Hards, I think, at this point. That's right. Spin it off. Patreon, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie, in terms of the production, it was actually a pretty easy shoot. I just, as is the case with like most Disney movies, they were very much a conveyor belt process here. They said there was really zero interference from Walt Disney when they were shooting this movie because he was so busy with the construction of Disneyland, uh, which I think it opened the year before, but like they were still building rides and building out their lands because they opened it unfinished. And they spared no expense on this movie in terms of the trains. The actual general and the Texas trains involved in the actual real world incidents were in museums, but they refashioned duplicates out of period era trains and they just spent a lot of money on that they want to look authentic as much as they could and um i had a little bit of a funny anecdote from harry carey jr 
who was a popular character actor of the time. He appeared in a lot of John Ford Westerns. He plays one of the soldiers who's enlisted to go on this spy mission in this movie. Sure. He barely does anything memorable in the film. And he acknowledged that. He said they were basically just glorified extras and just standing around a lot inside a train. And apparently, this was his little anecdote, was the actors passed the time by drinking. Now, Georgia was a dry state at the time. So Jeffrey Hunter would drive across state lines and transport liquor to the to the crew. <laughs> Good old Captain Pike. <laughs> he was like Smokey and the Bandit before Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> I I, I kind of want to get into a Jeff Hunter discussion later because I've only got two experiences with the guy, which is this and, of course, the pilot of the original series of Star Trek, The Cage. But it, it, I think he's got a lot more to him in terms of his career that I really should be checking out. Watch The Searchers for sure. That's a big one, yeah. Uh, this movie had a budget of $2.5 million, according to Variety. Um, and the gross is very tough to pin down. The number that kept coming up again and again was $1.7 million, which is obviously not particularly good if the budget's $2.5 million. But like, It's not great. It's not great. But it was like I found other anecdotes from like Turner Classic Movies that say this movie was very popular. So I don't necessarily trust that number. I think the basic takeaway was that it did okay, but it was not like a hit movie for Disney. And they just kind of, you know, it was one of the many that came out at that time. Well, it's weirdly not on Disney Plus here, which I I don't know whether, is that the same in North America? Yeah, it's it's the same here. And actually, that was one thing Cameron and I really discovered in doing sort of our Disney watches is how many live action 60s, 70s, 80s Disney movies aren't on Disney Plus. And we can't figure out a rhyme or reason to it. Some of them we thought they might not be on Disney Plus because of themes that are no longer, you know, socially acceptable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that's not the case. Like, we found ones on Disney Plus that are definitely have moments where you're like, hmm, or have warnings at the start. And then there's completely ineffectual ones on, you know, YouTube only. Yeah. Like, there's, like, wildlife ones. Like, uh, I don't remember the name of the... What was the one we watched with, like, a cougar or something? The one that was, like, a completely, like, totally family-friendly, like, you know, 70-minute, yeah, yeah. like, nature documentary slash kind of narrative that was just on YouTube mm -hmm. and is not on Disney Plus for some reason. Yeah. Or Lobo. Yeah. Lobo, the wolf the one. wolf. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, even something big like Condor Man, which is actually people know about that film. It's even mm -hmm. been referenced in Toy Story, is not on Disney Plus. It's bizarre. Yeah. It, and it seems weird because... You know, it's not like they're going to suddenly be released from the vault with fanfare. You know, hey, everyone, who's been waiting for Lobo to appear? The 4K release of the great <laughs> locomotive chase. It's here, everyone. <laughs> toot toot. So, so it just seems kind of bizarre that Disney has this wealth, question mark, of movies that they could put on their service, um, but choose not to. The problem is now the way that they're cutting costs with all these streaming companies is they're starting to cut their content out of the streaming services that was on there already and so i wonder now what the chances are of them adding movies like this if they weren't before they are not going to add you know some of these 50s 60s forgotten movies when they can have space for something that's going to get a few more eyeballs yeah sure and and with this movie too when when cameron and i watched it originally it was for rent on itunes whereas now it's only for purchase so how did you watch it janine well, I purchased it, of course. <laughs> you added it to your Fest Parker collection, I'm sure. Uh, 
Fest deserves it. That's right. Fest gets the best. So the top three for the year, number one was the Ten Commandments, number two, Around the World in 80 Days, and number three, Giant, the Elizabeth Taylor film. These are three very, very, very long, big studio movies. This is kind of that era where they are starting to get terrified of television and movies are getting bigger and bigger, and that's going to continue into the 60s. Uh, and um, I would say that at least two of the three are good. I'm not a big fan of Around the World in 80 Days, but I will say it looks very expensive. Okay. All right. All right. Anything else for us, Cam? Yeah, I got a couple of final notes. Fess Parker called the film dull and said there was more. <laughs> That's the headline. <laughs> dull <laughs> on Spy Hearts this week, everyone. And said there was more tender loving care of the locomotives than of their live asset. Basically saying they cared more about the trains than the actors. I mean, I, I, I saw Jeffrey Hunter get thrown around for about 30 minutes of this film. So I do understand that. Yeah. And 1956 was the year of Fess Parker, because two months after this movie, Disney opened Davy Crockett and the River Pirates, and they closed out the year with Westward Ho, The Wagons, another Fess Parker film. In 1957, the following year, you get Old Yeller. So, like, the Fess Parker period continued throughout this, uh, you know, 56, 57, and then it kind of tails off from there. As you both refer to it as the Golden Age. It really is, yes. Well, the whistle's blowing. It's time to board the train and talk about the great locomotive chase. Janine, I know you want to talk more about Fest Parker, so you're up first. You've revisited it. You've bought a copy of the damn film. (laughs) Tell us, what do you think of your revisit of the great locomotive chase? So when Cameron mentioned to me that we were going to be doing this movie and that I was going to have to rewatch it, I'll admit there was a little part of me that was like, ooh, I remember this movie being pretty anticlimactic. So, as as excited as I was to revisit old Fess on his hunting grounds, <laughs> I was trepidatious at the amount of time that's spent with not much happening. However, I actually really enjoyed this movie the second time <laughs> round. <laughs> like, okay. So it starts, and I, I'm in already. I was in the first time we watched it when they're talking about, you know, the man of mystery and who is that? And the next thing you know, out comes Fess on his horse. And this time, I, I stopped taking notes halfway through because I was just in. <laughs> Scott is just shaking his head in befuddlement. <laughs> I, I, I just don't know where I am anymore. Maybe, maybe I'm the one who needs uh, psychiatric help right now. <laughs> I I mean, it could be because just things in my life that led to this moment that <laughs> this is the height of entertainment for me at this time, but... All I have. <laughs> is all I've got. But no, I, I found, I noticed a lot more, like, the d- dynamics of some of the performances. Um, yes, there were definitely set pieces that were like, this is going to get excited, and then it was like, nope. Um, but I think because I knew that going into it this time, I was far more interested in the actual historical piece mm-hmm. of it as opposed to the promise of sensationalism. Mm. I I actually can, and I won't necessarily say my thoughts on the film yet, but I can definitely understand that perspective, Janine, because my second viewing of this was actually much better than my first. I was able to, for me, sit back and sort of take apart the spycraft side of it, which is you know, what I do. And 
trying to like appreciate the story more than the action necessarily, which is what I went into it the first time. Because after watching the Buster Keaton version, you think, well, okay, well, where do you go from Buster Keaton? Mm, yeah. Mm, yeah, I will say that too with, you know, my first time seeing The Great Locomotive Chase. I hadn't seen The General, mm. so that was my first introduction to this story. And then rewatching it now after seeing The General so recently... It definitely made me kind of go like, oh, that's what the general did on that side. This is what this movie's doing on that side. So it did help to, you know, create a bit of a deeper understanding of what was going on. So, Janine, you're saying you're a huge fan. You think The Great Locomotive Chase is great. Cam, what about you? <laughs> so I was in the same boat as Janine and that I wasn't necessarily like counting the moments to pressing play on this one. And just due to, like, I was fairly busy the last couple of days, and I was out at Bard at the Beach uh, last night uh, watching Henry V. And so that kind of went late. So I didn't get home till 11 o'clock at night. And I was like, now I need to watch The Great Locomotive Chase. And I'd been up at 3.45 that morning for work. So, like, I was very tired. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, here we go. And I will say this, like, this movie actually held my attention for the entire runtime. I had no problems whatsoever watching it again. I think like the time that had passed between the first watch to the second watch, I'd remembered it as being more boring than it was, which is not necessarily the case. I think more the fact that like when Janine and I watched it the first time, I think our takeaway was that it was just totally middle of the road and not like a dog, but my memory kind of changed over time and rewatching it. When you're going up against the general, that's impossible. The general is just like a virtuoso feat of physical acting, and it's just gripping to watch. This one, it's a very square movie. There is nothing cool about the great locomotive chase whatsoever. But I kind of enjoy its almost like <laughs> corny approach to telling this true life story. Like the fact that like they have a meeting in the woods. And I say woods in quotation marks because it looked like fake trees to me, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's just how Georgia trees look. But they're like piping in like fake wolf howls and lightning sound effect or si like lightning and uh, thunder sound effects. I'm like, this sort of thing looks so creaky, but I enjoy it. Like there's a kind of a cheesy Americana vibe to this movie that I find very watchable. And maybe that sounds like somewhat of a backhanded compliment. It probably is, but that doesn't mean it isn't entertaining for me to watch. And Fess Parker is so commanding in this movie. <laughs> it is the type of performance we don't have anymore. It is a man who shows up and is like, I am square jawed and I emote nothing. And you are going to watch me. It's a type, it's the type of performance you get in old sci-fi movies where it's like, you know, the main professor character who's like the hero and just does nothing but give exposition in a very square voice. That's kind of what Fess Parker does. And I find him fairly interesting as he carries us through this spy caper. It's a movie that I think I, my main takeaway is sort of more that like the historical details are definitely, they're a little fictionalized, obviously for the purpose of the movie, but they are accurate enough. You can get a sense as to what the real world event actually was. You know, you can look up the timeline, for example, like the Andrews, character was you know killed before the escape from the prison like they mm -hmm. give him much more of a going out on top kind of moment fighting off guards but like in terms of kind of the the nuts and bolts this is kind of the more accurate version so it's interesting in that regard it's not a great film but it's one i found modestly entertaining to sit through well, we've all learned something very important about cam smith just there folks 
when it comes in the future to him sort of comparing male actors, he's not comparing them to Orson Welles. He's not comparing them to, I don't know, Leonardo DiCaprio, let's get someone more recent. It is to Fess Parker. Fess That's Parker right. is the benchmark when it comes to actors in Hollywood for Cam Smith. Do we have a modern day Fess Parker? I don't know that we do. I don't think we do. No. That's one thing that we've we've lamented about is sort of the loss of those frontier movies and that frontier feel. We don't really get that anymore. So I can't think of anyone that, you know. No. And I mean, even when Disney, say, tries to do something like that, it's like the Lone Ranger where they're like, let's take kind of an offbeat approach to it and get really weird. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't play them like super, super straight. And obviously there's a lot of um, elements of these types of stories that uh, make them very dated with the specific time period of the 50s. You know, you would look at them in a very different lens in you know 2023 or whenever you're making the movie but i think there's a way to make this kind of like engaging old school adventure storytelling that could be a lot of fun one one i will that's actually jumped to mind that's actually you know very spy relevant is actually daniel craig in the john favreau cowboys and aliens right yeah he had a very sort of like old timey frontierland vibe and that's sort of the most recent example I can think that would, yeah, you know, if if I had to hand out a modern day Fess Parker award for acting, I would give it to Daniel Craig for that movie. <laughs> you I love see, it. Daniel Craig's just got more range than I've seen from old Fess. But I did have a name come to mind though, and I'll pitch it. Okay, and that is Nathan Fillion. No, he's Ooh, too self-aware. He's yeah, he's he's got a he's got like a. A mischievous charm. There's nothing mischievous about Fess Parker. How, okay, Scott, I have a question for you. How old do you think Fess Parker was in this movie? Oh, boy. 40? He was 32. Oh. I will never be as old as Fess Parker. Ever. <laughs> no. No, that's literally true. Uh, I, I have so... I don't, I, obviously, I haven't drunk enough of the Fess Parker Kool-Aid to really be on board with this one and speaking of i suppose i might as well chuck in my two cents on this one you said it before cam how do you follow up the general it's not that this is a direct sequel but how do you remake that story it's a it, it's a tough ask so the best thing to do is to t tell it differently which is what they did here i think the spy story in here is really intriguing i think there are genuine moments of tension in this film but for me I find it's kind of like the Bourne ultimatum of the Bourne supremacy. Like you're finding a little story inside of the bigger story that's way more interesting. Right. Okay. And that is the Buster Keaton story, which is the Jeff Hunter story in this film, which I, I think is, he is far more interesting <laughs> whenever he is on screen. Anything happening with Fess Parker and his cabal of spies, I, 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 I'm finding it interesting, but I really want to know what Jeffrey Hunter's doing. Because he is like this bundle of energy throughout this film. He is sweating profusely the entire time, literally sprinting along this train back and forth. If if actor's going to give a 10, he's giving an 11. I am all in on Jeffrey Hunter, not so much Fess Parker. You know, we were being a little unfair, I think, up front. That, like, I think Jeffrey Hunter is incredibly good in this movie. Like, You can see why he was... 
uh, seen as a, a movie star potentially as well. Like he was in King of Kings where he played Jesus. And that's a role where you have to have a lot of charisma on screen or else the movie just collapses around you. And he's very good. Jesus is known for his charisma, of course. <laughs> Of course. And uh, he was also, of course, in The Searchers, which was a very, very notable John Wayne film that I've mentioned. But um, yeah, he's an actor that like you can understand why they would cast him as like the captain of the Enterprise when they're shooting the original pilot for Star Trek that he ultimately, Mm -hmm. you know, that pilot didn't work out and he didn't stick with the show. But you can see why they would look at him as kind of like an authority figure because... Here he has so much charisma, and it, there's nothing to his character. We know nothing about this man at all whatsoever. Like, tell me a single personal detail about the Jeffrey Hunter character. He really likes his train. Yeah. I mean, he is Buster Keaton in this movie. He is that oh, character. Yeah. yeah. They're even dressed the same. Yeah. Yeah, they, they've made a conscious effort to make him look like Buster Keaton in this one. But that that's absolutely fine, because there has to be some sort of... I mean, I don't think people really realized it was like a remake at that point. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about things that we like. Uh, obviously, you're both going to leave with Fess Parker, so I'm going to ask for something other than Fess Parker, unless that really is what you want to go for. So, Janine, something you really liked about this film. Well, since I can't talk about Fess Parker, one thing I really enjoyed about this film was just, we sort of touched on it, how close it was to the actual story. Mm. Like, there is, it does give you a good understanding of, what the mission was, why they were doing it, and how it was executed. Whereas, you know, I love the general, I love that story, but it it did miss that sort of, like, historical context to it and felt the, a bit more, like, sensational, action-y. Um, so I did really appreciate that, and it actually led me to looking up more about the story and what actually happened and what the differences were. So that piece I really enjoyed. Um, another thing I enjoyed is, which I felt a little the first time I watched it but more so this time is I thought it did pace pretty well I didn't find myself sort of looking at like how much longer is this or you know have we gotten to xyz point yet so I do think once you have an understanding of the movie so that it's not this great locomotive chase you're able to just appreciate the slow flow of it and that's that's what I thought really worked for me this time. I think the title almost does it no favors. Like in some yeah. ways, yeah. it's going to draw an audience in. They're going to see great locomotive chase with like some dramatic artwork on the poster and go like, oh, let's buy a ticket. But I feel like that's going to be the part people walk out making fun of. Was that the, like the chase is not that spectacular. Whereas it's like kind of the more historical details that are, I think, a little more interesting. But like if we take this into, you know, this exact thing and put it on another train movie, for instance. You think of Unstoppable with Chris Pine. Now, if you've seen that film, it turns out it's stoppable. So they can't really just call it Stoppable the movie. It's unstoppable. You have to kind of missell it to get people in, and then you give them the story. Yeah, well, that's true. And this is, like, at times, it didn't bother me, but it's a little bit, like, dry information being given to the audience. Like, there's a scene where a character literally has, like, a blackboard and is showing exactly what the mission is going to achieve and the various locations and they have to like cut off the supply line. But I appreciated that I had context for this story that maybe like some Americans out there would know this story. Like they don't need that kind of information, but as a Canadian, I do not know this story beyond the general really. Like this movie really just wandered into my life two years ago. Whereas like, I really only knew of the general before that. Well, I think for the general, you didn't need to know, really where they were going you just needed to know who was who and and what Buster Keaton needed to get to 
this film, I, one of my gripes, which we'll get to, is once they're in the chase, they don't really do a very good story of saying like where they are and why they are and what the problems are and dangers are they're facing at certain points throughout the way. But having that bit at the start at least gives you an idea of the geography of the chase. There's Chattanooga. There's Missouri or, or whatever it was. There's Atlanta. So you kind of know where your engines are at any given point. Whereas the Buster Keaton version, you, you just you're just really worried about Buster Keaton at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with so that. So I'm yeah. glad they add that. I'm glad they added that in because it, it allows it at least gave me an idea of where everyone was going because the actual action sequences didn't really give you that. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. Yeah. And and I will say too, I I do want to touch again upon Fest Parker is I did just really enjoy his sort of calm charm in this movie like he stepped in took control of this command it was just very calm just very like this is the mission this is what we're doing and i felt that fit the tone of the movie and the mission itself he remained very low-key he had some very you know fiery tempers on his crew and just remaining that consistent was a nice difference from seeing a lot of leaders of missions to be very much like the amp like we're gonna do this and very you know boisterous and full of life yeah like you look at say like tom cruise in the new mission impossible like he is a live wire of energy throughout that movie fest parker is anti-energy and i like the way that like you know you have the scenes with him and the wild card william campbell uh, mm -hmm. played by jeff york this guy who's so volatile and the way that he has to constantly kind of calm this guy down and so much of the movie is kind of about their dueling relationship but Fess Parker never changes. Like, he always just has this kind of relaxed vibe with him that at the end, when they're side by side about to be basically executed for, you know, leading to this escape, I, I kind of appreciated their little moment together. The same way I appreciated the way that, like, him and Jeffrey Hunter have, like, just a couple scenes together. You know, up front where they first meet on the train, which is kind of a nondescript scene, really, other than it showcases how observant Jeffrey Hunter is at spotting these people who are not you know, Southern, um, you know, men on the train. But like, I like that moment at the end where the two of them meet at the prison cell. And it's like, look, at a certain point, the Civil War is going to be over. Let's, you know, kind of like help kind of, you know, ease these wounds, just the two of us sharing a handshake. And maybe that can speak to some optimism for the future. I, I like the way that Fess Parker has so much like, dignity and authority in those moments that's why you hire fest parker you do not hire him to be your charismatic action hero you hire him to give homespun wisdom that everyone nods their you know heads in uh, solemn appreciation but also the calmness and consistency that fest parker <laughs> <laughs> scott's just shaking his head I, I, do you know what? At this point, I'm I'm almost on board just so we can get to our destination quicker. If we can just all just get the Fest Parker out of our system and then move on to other things, I don't know. I, I, I I'll, I'll I'll chip in I'll chip in something about this when it comes to uh, how they portray both the Union and the Confederates in this film. It's interesting because when I first sort of saw it, I, I thought, oh, they've played the Confederates and I'm not coming down on the Confederacy here. I'm, I'm, a, I, I'm not even American. But, you know, they've got a lot of, like, Southerners who seem to be all up for fighting. But when you think about it, Jeffrey Hunter's character is also on that same side and he's very cool, calm, and collected, and intelligent man. 
both sides have the whole spectrum of like I just want to go in and shoot people uh, all the way up to you know intelligent thoughtful people and I think it actually gives both sides a bit of a you know, a fair fair go at it really it doesn't it doesn't just play them as the bad guys whereas it could have easily done that yeah oh totally like you look at the general and the Yankees in that were like <laughs> scheming monsters right mm-hmm. yeah. yeah capitalist monsters or something like that yeah basically yeah, yeah. um but Cam a like from you practical filmmaking this movie there's just like a charm to it even if like the action pyrotechnics never really kick in there's something just about watching these real trains going down a track them throwing railroad ties and that's something you can definitely appreciate in the general as well but just to see it in like these kind of technicolor 50s disney films where you can tell they took those actors that location spent x amount of weeks or months staging all of these sequences and i just really am kind of sucked into the energy of these movies i guess for me in some ways they're my comfort food type of movie where even one like this is not a uh, you know five-star classic there's something just kind of like inviting about watching filmmakers just shoot these types of movies well they're just so tangible like you know when you know Jeff Hunter is jumping onto that train physically, or like Fess Parker is throwing himself onto the back of the train. That's an actor just genuinely just jumping, and that's something we look to. We mentioned you know Mission Impossible earlier. A lot of what we love in those Mission Impossible films is the fact that Tom Cruise is actually just literally throwing himself around for our viewing pleasure. I mean, you could say Fess Parker was the OG Tom Cruise. Is he? Or is it, uh, I was going to say Jeffrey Hunter, because Jeffrey Hunter does some bails off the rail car that I was like, that is clearly Jeffrey Hunter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, either way works for me. I was going to give you some Fess Parker love, but you can bat <laughs> it back to Jeffrey Hunter if you want. Uh, I'll I'll chuck in my like that we haven't really mentioned. Uh, I was going to go with the action. I think Cam's kind of covered that there. I quite like just a few little things, I'd say. like I like the framing device of the film with the Pittenger character either end sort of introducing you because he wrote the book uh, into the story. And at the end, when they're given the congressional model, the, the congressional medal of honor, I should say that was quite nice. I liked just some of the genuine spy like tension. There's moments where they're slowly infiltrating the South there. I should say Fess Parker and his crew are infiltrating into the South and they go and stay in, in for the night and they have to kind of pretend to be, from Kentucky, from the South to enlist. And they're basically, you know, taking you back to sort of the glorious bastard scene where they're going undercover in the bar and they have to pretend to be, you know, fighting for the wrong side. And the, the, the loose cannon, I forget the actor's name now, Jeff York's William Campbell is at any time ready to get up and shoot the place up. <laughs> and you could, but you could feel that tension in him. Like he's like standing up and then they have to sing a, slightly problematic song at one point and even William Campbell again is ready to get his pistol out and start shooting the place up and I just appreciate that they took a moment and instead of going down the action route where they could have easily done that they thought no let's play it more like a a spy drama and I was genuinely pulled into those moments yeah like to me that is a big part of the like appeal is just kind of the espionage element and that like the movie does treat it pretty seriously it's not played as kind of like really flashy and over-the-top kind of comic book style stuff. It's delivered in a way that is, <laughs> I'm sure some people could say boring, <laughs> but but uh, relatively honest. 
agree. Well, you look at just like uh, some people will never go to the, the the more serious spy stories, the Lucari adaptations, and things like that. We love them all here, and this has weirdly has elements of both a action Mission Impossible film and a Lucari story of like actual spycraft. It's it's quite crazy that it manages to walk that line. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is a movie that was had a lot of potential and was done a bit of a disservice by being made in that period of sort of the Disney machine mm. where they were just cranking it out and not, I, I don't think quality was a big priority for them at that point. So it just sort of was like, yeah, let's just doom, doom, get it done and out there as opposed to sort of putting it in the hands of maybe a filmmaker that was really interested in making this a really dynamic and engaging movie as opposed to just sort of a historical retelling. Yeah, and it's like the way they would even just like toss the actors from one movie to the next. Because like Jeff York, who we've talked about, was in the Davy Crockett stories as well. Like they would just kind of have their their acting teams, their same writers and directors that they would just recycle over and over again. So like you didn't kind of get a lot of those sparks of genuine creativity in these live action films outside Mm -hmm. of something like Mary Poppins was a real like lightning striking moment. But like Walt Disney had so much control over these movies that he didn't want directors or writers who thought outside of what he was uh, comfortable with. And so Mm. you definitely had a template style to this type of filmmaking. Yeah. As well as, I mean, we've seen quite a few of the Disney historical retelling movies and they seem to be very focused on just, that retelling a historical story not you know making a making history fun or making history interesting it's it's sort of taking the stance of like hey this happened yeah watch it we interrupt this program to bring you a special report calling all agents keeping the lights on at spy hard hq ain't cheap and frankly nor is feeding the school of attack piranhas so we need your help Roger that, Scott. Only at the SpyHards Patreon can you gain access to exclusive shows like Agents in the Field, which tackles non-spy films starring your favorite spy icons, and The Debrief, where we channel our inner solitaires and predict how the big spy movie news of today will impact tomorrow. So make like a Treadstone agent and activate your Patreon membership at patreon.com slash spyhards today. Cam... Tell the people what we have in our sites this week. Scott, now is the perfect time for people to catch up on our September programming on the Patreon. I'm talking about reviews of Unstoppable and Risky Business, plus the latest episode of The Debrief, where we tackled the new Denzel Washington hit, The Equalizer 3. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy chinks. Well... I think it's time uh, this engine runs out of fuel and we get over to dislikes. Janine, I know you haven't got any dislikes. I know you adore this film. This is in your it's too top... short. Well, yeah, I want, I want even more. I want a greater locomotive chase if I could. Um, Part one. Is there... but yeah. <laughs> a real dead reckoning here. Uh... <laughs> what, would the, what would the cliffhanger be in that scenario? Where would you leave it? Um... Okay, uh, it has to be probably with like, okay, I think it's probably like Jeffrey Hunter realizes what's going on and like rides away on a rail car credits. Yeah. Okay, okay. This just makes me think like I would do anything to have seen a young Fess Parker run. (laughs) 
He doesn't run. There's no way that man runs. Can you picture that man running at all? No. No. Anyway, dislike. He's always got a horse on hand. He's just yeah. ready to roll. Yep. Well, okay, Janine, can you dig out a dislike for us? Yeah, so we did touch on this. I definitely dis dislike the fact that there was no great locomotive chase. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think definitely that was a huge disservice of having that title for a movie that really had nothing happen. There were moments where you thought like, hey, here's something exciting. Like one part I really laughed at is when they're chasing the locomotive in the push car. Yeah. They jump on it and Jeffrey's, you know, he's going, he's catching up to that train and they throw, I think, is it one of the railroad ties or something across the track? And he dives off that push car like, oh, no. And the push car just sort of goes, boop, and bops off the track. <laughs> and just sort of sits beside the track just calmly in the grass. And they can pick it up and put it back on and continue. Uh, you know, that that to me is like, that synopsizes this movie where there's these moments that you could make really sort of interesting and exciting. And they're just sort of like, nah, it's fine. Yeah, it, it's funny that like, you can't even say, well, that's just the way they made movies in those days. When you had like the uh, the general, like what, like 30 years before this, mm-hmm. just like doing incredible action that keeps you on the edge of your seat. It's the Walt Disney factory was not going to generate a top flight action film. And I think that is very apparent when you watch it. And there's not a lot of suspense to the actual uh, locomotive chase. On those, no. you know, you get those questionnaires where it's like disappointing, very disappointing, okay, great, very good, or something like that. If it's not great for you, Janine, where is this? Is this uh, coming down? Is it the okay locomotive chase, the disappointing locomotive chase? I would just say it's. Oh, I don't even know if using chase is a fair word. That's why oh. I said, yeah, I disagree with two words in this title: ah. chase and uh, great. Yeah, I would say. I don't even know if caper is a good... Maybe it'd be better if it was like the locomotive caper. Yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Or the locomotive capture. Or, you know, something that's... that's Because they basically just stole a locomotive. Like, yeah, they were being pursued. But they weren't being chased. Much less greatly chased. Well, there's something about, like trains and the speeds they go and the way that they can make that really work in some movies but here mm-hmm. they're like they're right behind us and it cuts to like smoke from like two miles away and you're like okay whatever that was one thing that um stood out to me this time is not quite understanding is like you know he basically almost caught up to the train by running like were they not trying <laughs> to expedite getting those trains out of there that's that's jeffrey hunter's cardio that's all he yeah. does but it was like Jeffrey Hunter seemed to have no issue catching that train, either running, push carting, or just grabbing another train and going. So that definitely confused me more this time of like, is there no is there no urgency at all at any point besides from Jeffrey Hunter? Like Well, here's a question. Can Fess Parker communicate urgency? No. <laughs> well, to be fair. I haven't seen Fess Parker put in a situation where I felt that the situation called for high, uh, a reaction to high stress. You know what I mean? Like, in this movie, I didn't, it wasn't like there was a real point where 
the men were like, they're catching. We got to go. Like, we got to go. And he was like, no, it's all good. We're fine. <laughs> like, there wasn't really moments like that. So there was almost no reason for him to to be urgent. It's almost like the fact he's so level-headed throughout the entire story. It prevents suspense. Yes. Every time they're cutting from <laughs> Jeffrey Hunter, like sweat pouring down his face in pursuit, it cuts back to like Fess Barker just looking very relaxed to be like, yep, yep, we're doing just fine. Whenever I see uh, Fess Parker on screen, I always can hear like doom, 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 in the yeah. background. It's got that kind of oldie feel to him. I get it. It it, it does take away the, the the sort of energy a little bit with without his urgency. I I he's not the kind of guy you want to shout out fire in an auditorium. Like I don't think he would really ever shout it. He just kind of say it. Yeah. I hope everyone else picks it up. Yeah. I don't know if we've ever seen him yell either. <laughs> Maybe in them. Mm. Fair. Uh, what about you, Cam? A dislike? Well, uh, to get serious for a moment, you know, you were mentioning, Scott, the way that like this movie has kind of like a very humanistic point of view of the Civil War. Because they're looking at both the South and the North and be like, look, we need to meet as brothers ultimately because we need to forge, you know, forward together. That is the future mm-hmm. of this country. This movie completely ignores race whatsoever and the slavery aspect of this story. And there's a scene, you know, the scene we mentioned where they go and are posing undercover at like that family estate. And like there is a, um, you know, black maid in this scene. And it's like this character is just invisible to the movie. And Mm -hmm. there's a point where they're singing, as you said, that kind of problematic song. She is smiling and clapping and singing along out of focus in the background to that song. And it does things like that a couple times. There is no person of color with any real dialogue whenever they show these situations where these characters would clearly be slaves in these houses. It's made to look very friendly and cordial, which is like definitely Disney filing down the edges because they want to you know, sell 50s values to an audience and everyone gets along and there's nothing you have to be at all concerned about. When you watch the movie now, you're like, oh yeah, this is... um. This is a little creaky in terms of depicting this honestly. Well, they had to bolt it down the middle because I imagine they wanted to open this in the South. Probably, yeah, yeah. And you couldn't play the Confederacy, even though the Civil War was long gone. You couldn't play them as bad guys even then and probably still not now in some parts. Yeah, and so like I do think in terms of kind of tackling that aspect, it definitely steps on some landmines there that I think... Um, are very valid criticisms against the movie. Yeah, it's a note I had for like final notes, just sort of about the creakiness, but it's definitely... Obviously, Disney have shied away from really tackling it head on. I'm not sure what they would have necessarily done with it. I don't know if this film has any any need to be tackling this any deeper. It's just about a train chase, but it is very much unfortunate that the the, the, uh, the black actors in this film are treated that way. Yeah. But you can look at like the general, which is like made 30 years beforehand, which manages to just kind of like tell its story and kind of keep that aspect a little bit removed. Whereas this movie keeps inviting it in. Like it's almost like inviting in elements of it. So you have more to go, wait a second. Uh, I will say Disney tries to sort of play both sides mm-hmm. on the race game. So they kind of like they try and downplay certain aspects of history so that those you know that 
are sensitive to it, rightfully so, can sort of like can have a gripe, but not like in Disney's mind, like a huge gripe. Whereas those that are very like, woo, pro those times can kind of be like, well, it's somewhat there. And they sort of try to play this weird dichotomy of like trying to sort of meet both sides as mm-hmm. opposed to taking a stance, which nowadays they do. But I feel like in those days they were like, eh, let's just sort of, you know, walk the line and see how it works out for us. We want everyone to come to the theater and have a good time, basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're like, everyone's going to come see this because of Fess Parker. So we need to make sure that all of his fans are taken care of. Right. Right. And I, I think that actually leads me very much into my dislike, which is basically a, a spin-off of the same thing. And is I struggled to, and I said it in, before, I struggled to root for Fess Parker and his team because I felt like they did so much good work with Jeffrey Hunter and making him, you know, you understood why he was chasing the train and they put so much energy into what, like viewing his perspective that I didn't know who to root for at times. Like, I felt like there was two different leads. It wasn't. It wasn't just Fess Parker and his gang's story. It was two different stories coming, you know, head to head almost. Whereas at least, and I know I shouldn't be necessarily comparing it to the general, but from a narrative standpoint, the general was very much Buster Keaton's story all the way through. If you were going to tell it from the Union perspective, you have Fess Parker up front. That's absolutely fine. But I think you give whoever's playing Jeffrey Hunter's character less time. And less of such a, a good spotlight that this film gives. You see him working overtime to try and chase that train down. Maybe don't do that. Maybe like make him do it. People get to do it for him or something like that. Make him more of a villain. There isn't really much of a villain in this film in a sense. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of like what the what the Confederacy stands for is villainous, of course. So that is what we're rooting against. But the actual the person that's representing the Confederacy actually is coming across quite level-headed and we could also root for them at the same time and that's confusing and and that's where i wonder again if that's disney trying to play both sides yeah i think so they don't want to they don't want to villainize the confederacy because you know those people have money that'll pay to see a movie and they don't want to you know villainize the you know so they're trying to sort of i think make it fair so both sides can come out feeling that their side did a good job and and in that respect, I think they did that. <laughs> but it doesn't make for a dynamic story. It's not clean. No. It's just not mm-hmm. it's not clean viewing. You don't have a single yeah. protagonist to follow, which is confusing for most viewers. It's mm-hmm. also like, you know, this movie's like 88 minutes or something like that. It's very short. But it feels like all of the, the men enlisted to help Fess Parker are pretty much just cut down to nothing. Yeah. Like, you have William Campbell's characters important, but, like, James Lupton playing William Pittenger, the author of the book, um, like, who is this guy? He's nothing. He has no character whatsoever other than opening the movie and, you know, being the author. I do like the idea of just, like, someone narrating and being like, you know, hi, I'm Scott Hardy, and I'm here today to talk to you about, like, <laughs> like this man is not the author. This is not William Pittenger, but he's, like, narrating it like he is William Pittenger. <laughs> that yeah. makes me laugh. But, like, yeah, like, none of these people really have any sort of character to them. And so, I, I don't know. Like, there's more character given to that guy, the um, Confederate soldier on the train, the one who is, like, wanting the, the seat on the the train he's an actor who we've talked about mm. um yeah. he was in cool hand luke 
Um, Morgan Woodward is the character actor's name, and he was also on Star Trek a couple times. But, like, that guy has personality in one scene. And then outside of, like, you know, the two members of the, of the, you know, Fess Parker's team that I mentioned, like, can you tell me any sort of, like, standout characteristic to any of them? No. There's, I think there's one big guy with, like, a mustache that they use as a heavy alongside William Campbell, mm-hmm. I think. I think. Like, dark hair. Yeah. Yeah. But that's all I've got. And then the guy that they can tell right away isn't from Kentucky. Yeah. Which is, yeah. like, kind of too bad because when you have an ending where there's an escape, six are brought, uh, brought back and the other, I think, eight or something like that escape, it would be nice to have some investment in terms of who was brought back versus who escaped. Yeah. And I'm just wondering that is there a three-hour cut out there that goes into these things? Because if so, Disney, release the cut. <laughs> the greatest locomotive chase. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Part one. <laughs> well, I, I think that's uh, our likes and dislikes handled. I'll throw it out to any final notes. I have a couple of quick things. Janine, is there anything you've missed off from your notes you'd like to bring up? I have a fairly extensive knowledge of Disney opening credits for this period and you know this one well i enjoyed the song it did open quite somber um it didn't have any sort of jaunty singing to it it didn't have any sort of high pickups to sort of lead you into like oh here we go we're gonna get into like an adventure here a a great locomotive chase um so that i definitely thought missed the mark on setting the tone for what should have been a great chase. Um, But I did really enjoy the drawings. I thought that was a really neat way to sort of introduce the story, um, walk us through what we're going to see a little bit, almost like Mission Impossible-y of like, hey, here's the adventure you're going to go on in this movie. So yeah, the opening credits, I think to me, were overall a bit of a miss and that they were a little bit somber, but I did enjoy that part of them. Well, I mean, we mentioned Mission Impossible a lot when we spoke about the general. What I didn't ever picture that we would be also mentioning Mission Impossible when we spoke about the Great Locomotive Chase. <laughs> I I had an additional note to add to that Mission Impossibleness, which is I I said I love the sort of bookends of this film, the sort of narrative sort of framework how it sets it all up, which is very much Mission Impossible Three. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm. You get the ending at the start, and then you finish it off at the end. That's right. It just needed Philip Seymour Hoffman playing that state senator or whoever that guy was. Oh, the secretary Stanton. Uh, his, sure. With it, his fake beard was amazing. It was it was great stuff. I wish I had a beard like that. <laughs> very very noble. Oh yeah. Uh, Cam, something from you? Uh yeah. So uh, the detail of them making bacon on the door, uh, like the furnace door, wasn't that great? Wasn't that That's great? the sort of moment you so rarely get in like Disney movies where you're just like a moment of spontaneity or like kind of like a weird little detail that they threw in there versus these very like streamlined, sanitized stories. That moment I was like, well, that's interesting. Huh. I'm going to remember that one. But are you going to eat that bacon? Yeah. Hell yeah. That's probably like, I mean, I don't eat meat, but that's probably like the best bacon you can have. It's like that outdoor cooked on the run Smoked sort of bacon. As well. Locomotive like... bacon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No preservatives. There's something with like bacon strips in there. There's like a there's like a pun in there, but I can't quite figure it out, unfortunately. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I'd eat it to be fair. And uh, they, they were making coffee on the stove as well in the train. I mean, yeah, that sounds like yeah. a nice afternoon. Yeah, it felt like an observed moment, like maybe something that had happened at some point that they were picking up on. Um, also, I just like appreciated seeing kind of the some of the sequences you see in the general, like the burning box car, for mm-hmm. example. Like I liked seeing those portrayed in a way that felt different. Um, some could say slower, but nonetheless, it was just kind of cool to see that like they picked up a lot of the sequences that I think were real world tactics they used during this actual event. But yeah. it was just interesting to see them portrayed in this way. So that was always interesting to me. It kept me uh, fully, uh, at least entertained through the movie. And I had one final question for you. At one point, they threaten uh, William Campbell with being thrown in the hole. What is the hole? <laughs> Isn't the hole like solitary? I would assume so. But is it a hole? Or also, um, oh, do you know what I think the hole is? Because um, they talk about, oh, no. That, I thought the hole was maybe something they just like, it's like solitary, but it's actually a hole. Like they dig it in the ground and the person has to go in the hole. They cover it. Isn't, doesn't something like that happen in Cool Hand Luke where they have to like dig it and then get it and then put it back in when they get out? Wasn't that the box? The hot box. Yeah. Because they, they talk about that in Django, too. In Cool Hand Luke, they make him dig, like, a huge ditch and then, like, and then fill it, back fill in it all in and then dig it again. Yeah. Maybe I'm confusing two things together. I think I think the hole is probably just a hot box in the ground or something like that where you're just outside for the whole day. Okay. Fair enough. Which is probably why William Campbell shut the hell up. So I looked it up and it basically is a term for the, for solitary confinement. Okay. 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 It's one of those things that you hear in so many movies, but I was finally like, what exactly is that? <laughs> well, Cam, whenever you come over here, we can reenact that moment. Okay, sounds good. I've got a backyard. We can make it happen. All right, folks, we've spent 14 hours locked in this cupboard. It's time to get out and talk about the knock list. Janine, it's your second time on the show, your second chance of getting a film on the knock list. Famously, Tomorrow Never Dies didn't make it, although I still stand against that. I think it's a fantastic film, but that's for another day. The Great Locomotive Chase. Is it making the list of the best spy movies ever made for you? Nothing would make me happier than to have a Fess Parker movie on the (laughs) knock list. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the only opportunity for that to happen. Mm -hmm. But, Mm -hmm. sadly... I cannot recommend this movie for the knock list. As as much as I love Fess Parker, as much as I do think this movie has some really great spy elements to it, I just don't think this story's hammered out enough to qualify it as a need to see. Um so it's a no. Sadly. I, I it's a sad no. I honestly thought because Fess Parker was in this film and your love for Fess Parker, I mean it, it punched its ticket directly onto not i'm shocked <laughs> i am shocked I, I have to keep some credibility <laughs> we have none i'm surprised you have some okay that's one no this is interesting now cam what do you think it's a no for me as well i mean oh. this movie i think is an acquired taste um i can't imagine like a 20 year old sitting down and watching this movie <laughs> Like, it is uh, kind of like that 
creaky 1950s Disney, you know, kind of stuff that like is fun and engaging for some, but I completely understand anyone who's like, why would I ever sit through this movie? I think there is like some stuff that does hold up. I think Jeffrey Hunter's performance in particular, but I think Fess Parker is just very interesting in a 1950s leading man kind of way. And, um, there's just, as I said, some good practical filmmaking. But beyond that, um, this is not exactly must-see filmmaking. Uh, I totally get that perspective, Cam. I, I I, would like to think that somewhere out there, there is a Tumblr page dedicated to Fess Parker being run by some 20-year-olds. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's run by me. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. That, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I'll be subscribing <laughs> to the page, but I appreciate it exists, at least. Uh, okay. So, two no's. My vote stands for nothing, but I think you all probably know my vote by now. It's also a no. This is an interesting film. It's a spy curio. Hey, it's we haven't really spoken about this in a sense, but this is another spy Civil War film. Yeah. I'm shocked by the amount of spy Civil War films we've come across so far, and there are more on the list. Yeah, there's one called Southern Yankee that is also about this real-world event. Wow. They, Another one. They really yeah. like it. I'm surprised it's not had a, a modern remake. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Hmm. But no, it's a no from me. I did enjoy bits of it, but not enough for it to be needed to see uh, at all. Uh, but I, I will tip my hat to a very good performance from Jeffrey Hunter. That's the bit that I'll remember from this film is Jeffrey Hunter. Sorry, Fess Parker fans. The the Fesbians out there, maybe. <laughs> that works. Fess hearts. Yeah. Um, but there you go. Three no's. As such, the Great Locomotive Chase is not making its scheduled stop at the destination of Knocklist Town. Now, Janine, I want to throw it to you. Thank you for coming back on the show. But I did have one final question to round us all out. We've all seen both films now. The General, The Great Locomotive Chase. Which one are you picking between the two? Ooh, it depends on what the occasion is. <laughs> is it uh... Fest Parker's birthday? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if if it's Fest Day, obviously. If I... Oh, is it is it a fest festival? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll say this. I saw the Great Locomotive Chase first, and I've seen it more. Do with that information what you will. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Coming out swinging. <laughs> I, I have a I have actually another question for Janine, though, that I think uh, might <laughs> kind of give a better sense of the uh, this movie within the context of Disney stuff. With the live action films, how high would you rank this one? So I will say this. I did look it up. And based off of the 70 live action films that we watched, yep. this was in, came in at number 30. Yeah. So it's not upper tier. So it's not upper tier. It's not lower tier. It's middle of the road. Yeah. And I think that's that's where it should be far from great so if there's like a semi knock list boom it's in there (laughs) (laughs) the mid knock list yeah yeah um i would pick the general i think in a heartbeat cam yeah same the general well janine thank you for coming back on the show it's been too long since we've had you on I'm not sure what we've got lined up for you next time, but I'm sure it'll be a very interesting film. Uh, looking at what you've had so far, going from Pierce Brosnan to Fez Parker, it, it is uh, all to play for. What a journey. By the way, Scott, before we sign off, I want to just note one thing I forgot to mention earlier. Mm. This movie had one award nomination. Oh? 
and it was the BAFTAs. Oh? The British recognized this movie. It had a nomination for the UN Award, which I think was like, you know, outside of British film. Like, because I looked at the other uh-huh. nominees, there was like an Italian movie, um, a couple, I think there was a Polish film in there. So I guess they nominated this movie as the American selection for the UN Award of that year. Against the films you mentioned earlier in the top 10, they're like all American <laughs> productions. I guess so. <laughs> yep. What were we on in the 50s? Oh, we were still getting over rationing. We were all hungry and tired. It makes sense. That bacon was so appealing. You were just like, yeah. <laughs> nominate it, nominate it. It's got to make the list. Uh, well, the, the BAFTAs are, usually don't let me down, but they may have on this on this one. But uh, mm-hmm. Janine, thank you once again for coming on. Uh, if people would like to find more from you online, where can you be found? Uh, I can't really be found anywhere with anything interesting. Okay. <laughs> a true spy. A true, yeah. Yeah, I don't have a podcast. Well, Janine, thank you once again for, for being on the show. Cam, the question goes back to you. I'm done talking about trains for a little bit. What do we got coming up next week? We talked a little bit about a certain franchise. It managed to work its way throughout the themes of this entire episode we had today. And so next week, we're lighting the fuse. That's right. We are looking at 1996's Brian De Palma-directed Mission Impossible, starring Mr. Tom Cruise himself. It's been over three years, and we've never really spoken about a Mission Impossible film. Some might ask, how have we ever existed as a spy movie podcast without doing that? And that's probably a very good question. But we'll leave that for you to decide, because next week, your mission should you choose to accept it is to join us as we check out Brian De Palma's 1996 Mission Impossible. And keeping up the spy hard tradition, we might just have a spy master interview or two for you as well. And if you like what you heard on this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly, as ever, on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next time, listeners, I'm off to start a Fez Parker podcast. (laughs) 